The COVID-19 pandemic is an unprecedented crisis for this country. The virus is 10 times more deadly than the seasonal flu, and it's more contagious to boot. And because our government did not act sooner to implement widespread testing and social distancing protocol, America's infection rate is climbing faster than countries more prepared to deal with the crisis. The Center for Disease Control has advised that we stay at home as much as possible, avoid groups of more than 10 people, disinfect surfaces, and wash our hands frequently. But the need to self-quarantine has some unavoidable economic implications. With employees grounded at home, industry is grinding to a halt, and food service workers, mail delivery workers, nurses, doctors, transportation workers, and others on the front lines are at high risk of exposure. Nearly one in five households have reported being laid off or having their hours cut back, and unemployment has been predicted to get as high as 20 or 30%, possibly eclipsing unemployment numbers seen during the Great Depression. Our public health system is unprepared for this crisis. We don't have enough test kits to effectively track and contain the illness. And moreover, because we are the only one of the wealthiest countries in the world not to guarantee healthcare as a human right, people who feel ill are afraid to get treatment for fear that it might bankrupt them. In so many ways, the coronavirus has sped up the slow-moving crises that were already in motion in this country. Our economy is fragile because it's built on tax cuts for the rich and temporary inadequate relief for working families. Americans are extremely vulnerable to layoffs because 80% live paycheck to paycheck. Real wages haven't risen with inflation. Our healthcare is tied to our employment status and we're paying on average 30% of our incomes just to keep a roof over our heads. Now, what you need to know is how we're going to help American families survive. Here is Bernie's plan. Simply put, Bernie knows we need to act now to decrease the amount of money leaving households and increase the amount coming in. Let's first deal with the amount of money coming in. Americans face record unemployment numbers. So under Bernie's plan, the government will help keep workers on payroll and every American will receive direct cash payments of $2,000 every month for the duration of this crisis. If you're laid off, we will expand unemployment insurance to cover 100% of your prior salary up to $75,000 a year. Now let's deal with the money going out, AKA your expenses. Among the top household budget items are housing, utilities, and student debt. So Bernie is fighting to immediately stop all evictions, foreclosures, and utility shutoffs, and to suspend mortgage loans for your primary home. Additionally, he's fighting to waive all student debt payments during this emergency. And of course, in the long term, to cancel all student debt. Another huge expense for Americans is health insurance. Medical debt is the number one cause of bankruptcy, and this crisis isn't making it any easier. Under Bernie's plan, every American will be covered for all their healthcare needs during this crisis, whether corona-related or not. And importantly, 
whether they're employed or not. Now, to make sure this crisis is over as soon as possible, Bernie has a plan to empower healthcare workers to defeat this virus. His plan would direct emergency funding to Medicare and Medicaid services to make sure everyone gets treatment and testing for free. He would do what Trump won't and use the Defense Production Act to use existing emergency authority to mass produce critical supplies like masks, ventilators, and protective equipment necessary to keep our nurses and doctors safe. And finally, Bernie is clear that any bailout must go to the people, not corporations, not the pharmaceutical industry, but the people. We must prosecute price gougers and self-dealers, ban stock buybacks, and condition any relief on a commitment from corporations not to lay off workers and to pay them a livable wage. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics driving the Bernie 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Leadership in a time of crisis is essential. That's why it's so critical that we continue to fight for Bernie to be the Democratic nominee. But I also understand how hard it can be to focus on politics at a time like this. So this week, I spoke to one of the best and most exciting communicators on the online left, Natalie Wynn. Natalie is the woman behind ContraPoint, a YouTube show which successfully brings the message of progressive politics to some of the darkest corners of the online alt-right. If you're not already familiar with her, now is the time to learn. She has nearly a million subscribers and her videos have chalked up over 33 million views. She's smart, funny, insightful, and her videos are theatrical and dynamic in a way that illustrates some sometimes difficult subject matter really, really well. So this week, as we process some pretty tough world events, I thought there's no one better to help us process than Natalie. Because of COVID-19, we recorded from home and we're not able to provide video for the interview. But frankly, I don't think this video needs it at all. So without further delay, Natalie Wynn. Natalie Wynn, it's been so long since I've been wanting to talk to you, in part because you are arguably the most popular and insightful and incisive and entertaining voice on the left in this online leftist space that is quickly emerging and which in this moment seems more critical than ever. Can you tell listeners who might not be as familiar with you a little bit about who you are and what your background is? Yes, I'd be happy to. And thank you for having me on. My name is Natalie Wynn. I'm the creator of a YouTube channel called ContraPoints, which deals with politics and internet culture, I suppose. And I started back in 2016, so it's been about four years of this now. And this topics I've covered, I, I started out covering the alt-right when that was like a new menace before Trump was elected. And then I've kind of since shifted to covering more like internet subcultures, like incels or um, 
that kind of thing. The part that people are missing in part because this is an, an audio only interview and in part because, you know, this is my show, which isn't as visually spectacular as yours, is that you also have this entertainment value where you have these elaborate sets and costumes and really great editing and lighting that makes subjects which can seem perhaps kind of didactic or heavy handed in other circumstances feel really accessible and fun. Yeah, I think of myself like as an entertainer first, as a YouTuber, like that's kind of how YouTube works. I mean, sure, there's educational, informative content there, but it's YouTube, you're competing against all the other stuff on that site, people playing video games, people doing makeup, drama, tea spill, uh, you know, cats falling down the stairs, whatever it is. And so you have to kind of, you, ha you have to hold people's attention somehow. And I'm, it's not exactly the case that I want to be an entertainer. Oh, just out of necessity. No, like, that's what I like doing. Like, I like doing the costumes and I like putting on a more theatrical production. So, and I found ways to use it actually in a kind of in a, in a way that's more than just entertainment, like I'll do these character dialogues, which I think have kind of helped me approach complicated topics in a, in a more nuanced way than just sort of ranting at a camera would. Yeah. And the, the other part is that if, if you were just to be sitting on the sidelines and anticipating what kind of messaging would be, would get through to incels or people who are on the alt-right, you might not presume that a trans PhD student with colorful costumes and sets talking about the left would be the, the best vehicle for that. But you have managed to get through to and flip, if you will, people who one might presume their kind of biases and backgrounds might make them not receptive to you. What do you think it is about the way you communicate that is so effective? Well, I try to enter the emotional worldview, I suppose you could put it, of, of these, these groups. So if we're talking about incels, like I spend a, a sort of dangerous amount of time on their forums, dangerous to my own mind and sanity, but I, I spend a dangerous amount of time on those forums or just like sort of immersing myself in these dark parts of internet culture and... I sort of like learned to be able to think and feel like they do to sort of encounter a situation and be like, okay, how does an incel react to this? Like translate this into incel language. And then you can sort of start to look at, I can look at myself as they're going to look at me and I can look at my ideas as, as, as they'll look at them. And then I can kind of try to present that in the way that's going to sort of vibrate like the most in harmony with their sensitivities, I guess. So, I mean, obviously I'm not the best person to be doing this, like probably Oh, this is a terrible thing to say. Probably like, I don't know, a straight white man would be better, but there's not any straight, there happen, just happen not to be any straight white men who are better at this than me. So, wow, that sounds terrible, but, <laughs> but it's true. I'm sorry. I'm just good at it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that's really interesting because sometimes, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, there is this sentiment that I hear sometimes from folks that says, you know, the bad people are bad. And to want to reach out to them is a fool's errand. They cannot be changed. There's this kind of like essentialist view of people who don't agree with you already politically. And whereas I perceive the work of politics to be about largely about persuasion and being able to put together coalitions that can advance shared goals, there is a certain hesitance among people to say, 
reach out to ideologically opposed people because the presumption is that the only way to get those folks to agree with you is to compromise some aspect of your own ideology and throw people who are more vulnerable under the bus. And of course, that is not the case. And we see that in the coalition that Bernie Sanders has been putting together, right? When you look around and you see that overwhelming majorities of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, support Medicare for all and a $15 minimum wage and having workers on corporate boards, then you can simply offer those things and get a lot of people aligned with you who might not otherwise have been aligned with you. But the people I have found over and over again most willing to have those conversations are people who tend to belong to historically marginalized groups who are willing to say, hey, I have skin in the game and I'm not willing to say that there's this population that we shouldn't be talking to because if they don't vote with us, if some percentage of them at least doesn't vote with us, my substantive rights are going to be on the line. And the folks who I have found most hostile to the idea of doing that work actually are the people who are more likely to be straight white men or straight cis white women, friends of mine, you know, who I have found repeatedly get very, very agitated with me when I speak of you know, Republicans or people who have voted for Trump with anything other than pure, unadulterated contempt. Is that something that that you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I'm constantly being lectured by by cis people on how I need to talk about trans issues. <laughs> like, like for exactly that reason, that they think that I should take this dualistic good and evil point of view. And, and the reality is that, like, if you live as a trans person in this world, like, the, the fact of the matter is that most people are not on your side to begin with. And so being able to exist means being able to have some confidence that people who are ignorant or who come at you with just just a, just a bunch of nonsense, like can are not doing that because there's something essentially wrong with them, but because they are, well, because they are ignorant, which in ignorance is, is, a, is a potentially temporary state that people can improve in that way. And I think that, uh, like you say, like like if you believe in democracy, then you have to believe that. Like you have to believe that a majority of people can eventually come around to a good decision. <laughs> and if you don't believe that, as it seems like an alarming number of people don't, the people who have that kind of essentialist good and evil view on things, then I don't see why you shouldn't prefer some more authoritarian system instead, which maybe some of them do. I mean, that's I think that's where we get into this this mode that many people, not all people, many people in the Democratic Party seem to have been in for the last, let's say, 20 or 30 years of, you know, neoliberalism. And of course, neoliberalism, it's not just some smir smear that, you know, sometimes people online talk about it as I, I hesitate to use the word because they characterize it as just a smear tactic against people who are closer to the, the center left. But no, I'm, I'm talking about specifically third way Democrats who embraced a middle way, as it were, as they called it, to win elections after a string of defeats to Republicans in the 80s, right? Once neoliberalism was kind of proven effective, as it were, in their worldview by the successive Bill Clinton, then you have a world where you're saying, okay, We've made this compromise to say we're going to take corporate money. We're going to be able to compete on TV with with Republicans and advertising because we're going to lean into this kind of Wall Street modality as well. But we're going to differentiate ourselves from Republicans by not being anti-immigrant and not being anti-gay and not being anti-black and not being anti-Latino, et cetera, et cetera, at least superficially. Right. 
Mm-hmm. There becomes this divide between the policies, which very much are often anti-gay and anti-black insofar as that they're economically strangling and they deport enormous numbers of people and they vote for don't ask, don't tell and all these other kinds of things. But, but superficially, we don't use racial epithets. We don't like Strom Thurmond and, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's like a difference in politeness as opposed to a difference in, in, in deeper substance. Exactly. Exactly. So then that's where you get this essentialism, I feel like. It's like, okay, there's we're we're not even going to try to use the substantive material reasons why someone might be in a coalition. We're going to wait until the demographic reality of the country changes and just hope that if there's more Latinos, if there's more black people as compared to the number of white people, then the party can subsist. But what you're seeing is a realignment where newer Latino voters don't necessarily vote lock and step with Democrats the way that black voters historically have done. And people are slowly, I think not quickly enough, realizing that you actually have to offer offer people something to get them to vote for you. Yeah. And I think that would be the case, whatever the demographics of America turn out to be. Like, I I think that in the exact way that we have these sort of ideological justifications for inequality that work on white people, those will will work just as well with not white people. So if you want a more socialist or more uh, egalitarian economic society, then I, I don't think it's enough to simply wait for wait for for the demographics to change like you do have to have like you have to really convince people that this is something that will benefit them because it will so you're a bernie sanders supporter yeah so Mm -hmm. what's your read you know this is a really interesting moment that we're in you know we're down in the delegate count it's far from impossible to recover but there's an overwhelming media narrative that early on was trying to make it seem like Joe Biden's nomination was an inevitability. And that's difficult to overcome and something that we're working to overcome with independent media here on this podcast and our live streams and other things in this campaign. But I'm curious, as an independent media maven, what your read on this current electoral moment is. I've become somewhat discouraged, I'll admit. I think, like, I really wish young people would vote. (laughs) I guess that's my take. Because it's been kind of a wake-up call, I guess, for me to be on social media all the time. And it seems like everyone left of center is just sort of a whole generation, like unanimously behind Bernie. That's the feeling that I have online. And then, you know, Super Tuesday comes around and it's like, oh, damn, like, I guess boomers still run this country. (laughs) And they do. So I think that I'm not the, like, the analyst who could give you a good answers on exactly what happened or what's happening. But my sense is that either more young people need to show up and vote or we need to start messaging towards boomers. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that part of the frustration is that in so many ways, the campaign's messaging or the campaign's policy platform rather really is very well aligned with what the needs of boomers are. You know, you see Mm -hmm. Joe Biden out here repeatedly over the course of his career attacking Social Security. You see that seniors are actually the fastest growing group of people who are um, under the boot of student loan debt. 60,000 seniors had their Social Security checks garnished for student loan payments. I actually did. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I've been using that stat more frequently because every time I say it, everyone says, oh, gosh, I didn't know that. But it's, it is true. And so I think it is incumbent on the campaign to message more clearly that that's what's going on. We have amazing you know, long term home care programs and this moment where so many people are 
stuck at home who have elderly relatives. I mean, I have, you know, a grandmother in Ohio that I'm thinking about who has home care aides coming in and out of her house all day. She lives with my aunt who works with, you know, a lot of clients in an opioid addiction treatment center, right? So it's like a lot of physical contact and now she's coming home. It's a messy situation for everyone. And this moment is really, I think, highlighting the extent to which Bernie's policies were a real prescriptive for this even before it happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would hope that this would be kind of a major wake up call for a lot of people. I mean, having a a major pandemic and it turns out that like, oh, food workers and like house cleaners and and hotel, like they don't have paid sick leave. Oh, like there's 30 million people or 29 million people who don't have insurance, like and can't get tested, won't seek treatment. Oh, well, these are all like public health hazards as much as they are like individual moral atrocities. Like, and I think that especially when you have a disease that disproportionately is, like kills people over 60, like, and a president who just do- doesn't take it seriously at all, like, maybe nothing ever will break the support of Trump among that core. But I would think that this might shake it a little bit. Well, I think it, it requires someone to draw really strong contrasts, I think, between how Trump is handling it and how it should be handled. And I think that what is been happening is that Democrats haven't always modeled what the response to various issues should look like, even while we critique what Trump is doing. And the gap, therefore, between what is and what could be is not so clear that it can jostle Trump supporters free from their preference of him, right? So this is something I remember I wrote a, a piece which just before I left The Intercept that was a critique of the State of the Union speech and the response by, I think, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had given the response and then Bernie gave a follow-up response. And the contrast between Bernie's response and the Democratic Party response was really notable. And I, I find myself in this moment again thinking what we need is someone who not can just say Trump bad. It's easy to be negative. It's easy to be yeah. critical. It's a lot harder to demonstrate what should be done. And so that's part of why I'm looking forward to We're recording this on the Friday before it will be released. But tonight, Bernie is giving an address about another one of these coronavirus addresses in which some of these contrasts will be drawn. And I think this is exactly the kind of leadership we need in this moment, which unfortunately we're just not getting from the other candidates still in the race. Yeah, it would be good to see uh, the Democrats show up to really like talk about how this should be done and seem like seem competent and seem a contrast to Donald Trump's terrible mismanagement of the whole thing. Like, I think that would be very powerful. Well, so what are you seeing among the because you, you have a closer proximity and, and much more intelligent perspective, informed perspective on what's going on on the right than most folks. I mean, I don't know if you saw this this discourse on Twitter over this past week where Tucker Carlson, he, he was basically right. <laughs> you know? It happens occasionally. Yeah. And people are losing their minds. But people who have been following the right are saying, oh, no, no, no. Tucker Carlson has actually been good on this issue for a while. And that Fox News is kind of the last stop in right-wing messaging, not the first. And if you are at all immersed in this world, then this moment wouldn't be a surprise to you. So I'm curious, as someone who is immersed in that world, what are you seeing the response from the right? I'm curious whether, you know, there is any, you know, any conversation about how the right or, you know, people who are in leadership and how just the people on the right 
perceive Biden as a candidate because his argument, of course, is that he's going to be able to pull some of those Trump voters over because he just presents as a, a reasonable middle ground choice. I think that there's probably moderate Republicans who would vote for Biden. But I think that, so this is actually an argument I've been having a lot lately with like some friends and relatives who are, who think that we should elect Biden because they think that he's more electable than Bernie. I probably would have thought that four years ago, like back in 2016, shame to admit, I, I, I did support Hillary over Bernie because at the time, I didn't think that Bernie could be elected. I thought Hillary was a shoe in Oops. And I, I think, you know, what convinced me otherwise actually was kind of seeing Donald Trump elected. And I think that that sort of proved to me like, oh, all the things that all the conventional wisdom about what you need to be to be president, like that all turns out not to be true. And I think that having this core of passionate supporters, whereas Hillary sort of like, I had a lot of people like me who were like, Sure, I guess, was kind of, you know, my feeling, and I think a lot of people's feeling towards Hillary. And I think that there's actually something to be said for someone who has a passionate following and for someone who has like ideas that to a lot of people are shocking and new, which will draw in media attention. And I don't know, I just picture Bernie on a debate stage with Trump. I just really see that working for Bernie. He's such a sincere and passionate believer in, in what he says. And Trump is so is such a, a duplicitous weasel that the contrast of the two of them, I, could, I think, I don't know, I kind of fantasize about it. Whereas with Biden and Trump, like, oh my God, like, it's just like two people who can't string a sentence together. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because, I mean, we literally saw this play out before and, you know, and in either last week's episode or the episode before that, we set out in the intro clip exactly that argument. And we Played, we used some clips from 2016 showing how Trump was able to get to the left of Hillary on various issues. And to be really, really clear, this isn't to say that he actually was being authentic or truthful or that he has at all legislated or ruled in a way that was in accordance with what he promised while he was running. But mm. we're talking if we can set aside how he is as a president versus how he was as a candidate. Trump, as a candidate, was able to position himself repeatedly to the left of Hillary Clinton, whether it was on the war in Iraq, whether it was on health care. He claimed not to want to have people die on the street and that he wasn't just going to get rid of Obamacare. He was going to replace it with something that was better. He accurately diagnosed that premiums were growing and high under Obamacare and that people were struggling to pay for them again and again and again. Oh, oh criminal justice issues. He was able to accurately critique Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's support of him at the time uh, on the crime bill. So when you look at that and then look at someone like Bernie Sanders and what we did last week is we played a clip of that debate. I don't know if you saw in the weeks or the months after 2016, he did a debate with Ted Cruz on healthcare, and seeing how Bernie is able to withstand that kind of typical Republican critique by simply saying, hey, you know what? You're right. There are problems with Obamacare. There are problems with the ACA. Premiums are high. So I hope that you join together with me and fix that problem by supporting a Medicare for all single payer system. Right? Oh, I think like really Bernie's going to be helped here by the fact that these policies, particularly Medicare, like are popular and that they do address like a thing that people really do want. And like you said, like that's something that even that, you know, is going to be that's like it should be a challenge for Republicans that they're, they're, they're being forced to oppose something that is actually very popular. Now, 
Trump will say anything that he thinks will work. So that's, you know, a little bit difficult. But at this point, you know, he's when he's been in for four years, like, I think trust that he'll actually do anything that people want is kind of fading. I hope that's true. Is that are you seeing any, any waning of commitment? A little bit, yes. I, I would say that 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 I've, some people definitely the coronavirus is kind of the last straw for them. But I also, you know, I we've kind of always known this about Trump. There is this I don't know what it is like maybe twenty five percent of this country that would run off a cliff with him. And I, you know, I think that that just has to be taken as a constant and and worked around. What would your advice be as someone who has been so successful in the left media space? I mean, part of what part of what is frustrating, part of why our job is, I think, more difficult than perhaps others, is that we can't rely on the institutions that benefit from the status quo to help this movement, right? So we can't rely on the mainstream media. We can't rely on the millionaires who often are the people who are featured on those programs. You know, we we can't rely on CNN, who in their post-debate coverage includes on a five-person panel, Terry McAuliffe, who is a Biden endorser (laughs) as one of the objective voices without having anybody um, who represents the Bernie camp. We are going to have to rely on alternative media more. So what advice would you give both to the alternative media coming out of this campaign and to other lefties who want to build an infrastructure to continue to support left ideas and bolster the efforts of this campaign. Why do you think that you're so successful? Well, I think that my success is really limited to a particular sort of domain of ideas. Like I can't do everything, but I can tell you like what I do for the the environment that I'm in. I sort of came onto YouTube in the midst of a particular situation. So I've always talked a little bit more about kind of like social justice left issues. I'm not so much a great speaker on the economic stuff, but I think that to me, it's about sort of taking the cultural temperature before making media. That is finding what it is. In this case, it was it was for me finding what it is that people really don't like about the left. What is it that really puts people off about these social justice activists? And in my case, what I found was that you have kind of a, like a, a generation raised on like 4chan and South Park, especially a generation of boys. They are really hostile to preachiness. They're really hostile to sermonizing. Like most people, they're opposed to being told what to do. So it turns out the way to get to them is to kind of refuse to be the screeching, cringy SJW they want you to be and to be something that forces them to expand their mind to to, to handle. That's for me is is what worked initially. You know, now things have kind of changed and like there's this whole world of leftist commentary on YouTube that just did not exist in 2016. Like when I started, I mean, there was the Young Turks there was a community of feminist vloggers, but there was no left tube. There was no big community of, of leftist creators. Um, it just didn't exist at the time. Well, now it does exist. So my hope for that world and for the podcast world and for you know all the alternative media that are, have sort of emerged to, to, to talk about leftist politics is to keep in mind, don't get too lost in this kind of internal feuding and don't get too lost in this world where it's like leftists making content for other leftists. Like, keep in mind that insofar as you're interested in pers- in persuading people, which I think a lot of political creators, that is what they're interested in. Like, keep in mind, like, a general audience. So 
I would say I don't focus on so much. There's been so much talk about de-radicalizing the far right. And a lot of like the, the, the media coverage of me, for example, has been about like, oh, de-radicalizing the alt-right, de-radicalizing these alt-right people. And like, yeah, I definitely like there was a stage in my channel where I think that is like a lot of the persuasive work I was doing. But in general, I think that's not as pers like it's not as constructive to try to win over devoted Trump voters as it is to speak to speak to the center, speak to the general public. And I think that, you know, there's some basic things like that. Like I think like you said earlier about this about worrying about the word neoliberal being sort of this slur against the center. Well, yeah, I think that attacking centrists as like you dumb idiots. Like why? Like, like, I don't think that's, that, that works very well. People go, got to get defensive when they've been attacked. So the tone has to be somehow inviting, like, and, and, and being so like holier than thou and so oppositional towards people who you want on your side is I, I think don't get caught up in this, like, like I'm the, 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 the farthest left. I am the most ideologically pure, like this like silly competition that seems to dominate on Twitter, especially. This is not helpful. It's not real work. It's not activism. It doesn't do anything. I think that, you know, the real work is messy. It's, I mean, you have to talk to people who don't agree with you and you have to think about, you have to enter into perspectives that are pretty different from your own and see how people are thinking and what they're afraid of, what they want, what they're hoping for. And you have to be able to kind of access all of that. So I guess my advice to creators who want to reach that general audience, which is also good for your platform because you're going to have more more viewers, more listeners, more readers, is try not to get sunk into this like alienating leftist echo chamber where it's a lot of like Marxist jargon and a lot of a lot of assumptions made that of course we all agree on these things that most people don't believe. It's more basic, I guess, in a way that than you might think. And I think it's it's, it's great to use particular situations to il illustrate the general ideas. Like coronavirus, I think is a, is a is a great way to talk about universal healthcare, for example, or universal uh, Medicare. It's a great way to talk about a lot of these things. So that I think is an, an, that kind of thing is an accessible way to make media that 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 catches people's attention. And then if you can do it in that uh, inviting, as I say, kind of way, as opposed to the, the oppositional, confrontational kind of way, there's room, I think, for different creators and different styles. But I, I w I've, I've always found that I, I gravitate towards the inviting one. I find it most persuasive and most effective. So for people wanting to do that kind of work, I recommend that approach. I think that's right. I think that there is sometimes a hostility to the so-called normie. Mm, absolutely. And if you're talking about coalitional politics, what you're talking about is building majorities, which are definitionally kind of the norm. <laughs> you're trying to make yeah, your yeah. ideas <laughs> the norm. Like you want to be the normie if you're winning. You know, we've tried on this podcast. We've had you know John Favreau on from Pod Save America, and I've been reaching out to some other folks who identify somewhat more. I won't say moderate, but not not quite as you know, kind of radical, rose-wearing leftists, people who were part of other campaigns who supported Elizabeth Warren, and but who who broadly share these goals of universal health care, universal child care, which Biden doesn't support, you know, universal pre-K, all of these kinds of things. And to talk about why, given how much we have in common, there is still some hostility. And so if you're listening and you're someone in that group or you have a suggestion of someone who I think who you think might be a good person who'd be willing to have that conversation with me, please let me know because 
that's exactly the work we need to be doing writ large. And if we can model that in certain ways on this podcast, I think it will be enormously helpful, not just in the context of this race, which I want to emphasize is still winnable and very much ongoing, but broadly to the work that we're all going to have to do regardless of, of who wins. Well, when Bernie went on Joe Rogan, I know this was a huge source of controversy. I thought it was a great idea because to me, like the point of a campaign, maybe this is controversial, but it's to win an election. And, you know, we have electoral college, so it's not just popular vote, but essentially it means you need 51% of people to on your side. Well, 51% of America, like <laughs> think about, think about what, how many different types of people that has to include. And so like you said, it's coalitional politics, like in, in order to make this work at a, on a big stage, like this cannot function like a Twitter click where everyone agrees on everything, like to have a coalition that's big enough to win an election, you have to include a lot of people you have major disagreements with. And this is one thing that makes me really hopeless is seeing the way that that fails to happen. Like, we're talking about a huge collision. I'm talking about like, you know, the LGBT people have to get along with the union people and who have to get along with the, you know, like civil rights, Black Lives Matter people, people who have to get along with the feminists. And it's like, not only does that seem to not happen on, on social media a lot of the time, even within like LGBT, like there's like massive disagreement, even within the T of LGBT. This is my little world. Like the, the, the fighting is just so intense and so pointless that it makes me like, oh, it makes me despair because it's like, if we can't even come together politically as the T and LGBT, like, like, how are we going to gonna work like with the rest of that group and with the rest of all these other groups that we need to form a coalition with? At some point, there has to be this acceptance that like, okay, if there's going to be these, these, you know, points of opposition, points of of conflict. That's just how it is when you are in a diverse social group. But I think that trying to work through those disagreements in a more constructive way than just sort of canceling people or saying you're evil or the, the kind of dualism, right? Or, you know, even beyond that, just like making the pragmatic decision, like, okay, look, even though maybe I disagree with you, maybe I don't like you, maybe I hate you, but like, that, like, so what? We have a goal to accomplish and that means working together at these critical moments. Right. That's, I mean, this is a little, a little spicy, but I think that your point about cancel culture is really apt. I mean, it seems to what we were talking about before, you know, how it, it sometimes feels like the people who have least at stake are the quickest to cancel or the quickest to not want to engage. I fully understand, look, as, you know, as a woman, as a black person, as, you know, all of the things that would make me obviously very upset about forms of bigotry that persist. It is frustrating to me that people default so quickly to disengagement as somehow yeah. the more courageous stance. I don't want to say that like canceling people is kind of, I don't know, like cowardly because I understand that there's a, a you know legitimate emotional responses to people who've done terrible, terrible things. And on an individual level, no one should have to engage. If you are, if you have been sexually assaulted, you shouldn't have to engage with someone who has been accused or convicted of the same or, you know, on and on down the line. But as a culture, as a culture, it seems like the response to some of these things, it stops and starts at canceling as opposed to thinking about what penance, accountability, all these other things look like, which are a lot harder 
And I think in a lot of ways, more socially constructive. Yeah, I 100% agree that people, no one, no one has to engage. This is not an obligation. People are absolutely entitled to their emotions. You're entitled to your righteous anger, like 100%. But I guess the thing I, I want to see change is like, I think it needs to be openly acknowledged that raging on social media does not help. Like this is not activism. This is not doing anything. It might feel good. It might be a reflexive response. Okay, that's valid. That's allowed. But it's not work. It's not helping. It's not activism. And I think that I like to see more appreciation, I guess, for the people who do the dirty and difficult and thankless work of sort of trying to overcome, trying to be patient with 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 people and trying to overcome these kinds of disagreements, because I think that, um, does it always work? No. Does it work most of the time? Probably not. But it's more effective than, I think, just raging. So I think that just like we have to make room for diversity of viewpoints, like we have to make room for a sort of diversity of strategies. And just because you are really, really angry at centrists and you can't stand to talk to them anymore because of the things they've allowed to happen in this country, like, okay, I understand that. That's That's fine. That's valid. But also, don't then like also lash out at anyone willing to talk to them because those people who are willing to talk to them, okay, so they have a different, maybe they have different experiences, maybe they're more privileged, maybe not. But the fact that they're willing to do that is good for you. It's good for all of us. And I, I wish that, I wish we could just acknowledge that there's there's reasons to to talk to people who are not on our side that are not just colluding with evil. It does feel sometimes, and I've, I've you know, this is another little spicy take. It does feel sometimes like, it is more difficult to talk to, and I say this as someone who's, I'm, I'm thinking about my actual friends and peers here, but people uh-huh. who basically are Democrats, but who don't support Bernie Sanders because in their view, what his, his agenda is just too far-fetched to be practical. That's what they say anyway. It can be very difficult to talk to them on almost more emotionally draining because they purport to care about what I care about. They superficially say they don't want people dying in the streets. They make all of the noises that gesture toward having shared values. But the kind of the idea of impracticability becomes the kind of fallback position or the hedge that enables them to support candidates who not only don't you know, have an agenda that achieves those ends, but who have are actively saying they will resist them. So you have Joe Biden on TV a week or so ago saying that even if Medicare for all passed the House and the Senate and got on his desk, he would consider vetoing it. Yeah, it's awful. Right. To me, that's, that should yeah. have been, you know, a 24 hour news event for weeks until Joe Biden was forced to backtrack that opinion. I mean, there's just no <laughs> there's no way around in the middle of a, an epidemic where people are dying and people are not getting tested, when people are spreading the disease more than they need to because they are afraid of incurring $3,000 or $20,000 cost in testing and treatment. That nugget, that, the, that fallback position is what so many people, and I think that they authentically believe that. And I don't judge them personally for it because they've been told that for their entire lives that better things aren't possible, better things aren't possible. But mm-hmm. it can be frustrating to engage with folks who have that position because it feels like we shouldn't have to fight that hard with folks who already agree with us kind of ideologically. Yeah, I have I have the exact same experience and it is frustrating and you do kind of wonder like, but well, do they really support this or, or, or are they just saying it's not practical to avoid arguing against it? Well, 
I think it's true that, especially, for, I think, and the older you are, I think the more this is true because this goes back so long. Like, there's such an instinctive, reflexive, deep, visceral opposition to like anything socialist in this country. But the thing is, like, that's changed so much in the last ten years. Like, it's changed more than I ever thought it could change in this country already. And that makes me think, oh, things that were rules in 1990 are not rules now. And I mean, I remember in 2010, like the people who were college age at the time, like, God, there was there was two camps. There was like the Obama camp that I was on, and then there was like this libertarian thing that was huge then. Ayn Rand, Paul Ryan, uh, Ron Paul 2012, all that. Well, that's just gone now. And you know, you see what college students are discussing, and like, and like the huge number of them are basically just like openly socialists. It was nothing like that when I was in college. I mean, there was Occupy Wall Street. It was a thing. There were definitely college students who supported that, but the discourse has really, really changed. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with Bernie Sanders and with the fact that the younger generation has gotten more and more disillusioned with seeing, looking at their future and seeing all this student debt and seeing the stagnation of wages and, and all that kind of thing. Like, I do think that things that were once impractical, I think we need to sort of reevaluate what is practical because that's not something that's eternal and fixed. Like these things really can change. Yeah, and I think this crisis, as horrible as it is, and certainly nobody would ask for anything like this to happen, but if there's any silver lining, it seems to be the realization across the political spectrum that this crisis requires a mobilization effort that's tantamount to a wartime mobilization effort. And suddenly everything that two weeks ago seemed impossible is on the table, even from Republicans. Even Republicans right, are the right. ones right now in this moment, things might change by the time this airs, who are wanting to offer cash payments more than most Democrats. Of course, there are a lot of Democrats like um, um, uh, Representative Waters, who is arguing for cash payments. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is as well. But, you know, we're seeing a kind of a realignment. And the risk is that in if in this moment, Democrats don't rise to the, the occasion, that the realignment could be an economic populist right that is offering up the economic support that people are clamoring for and a Democratic Party who is more wedded to its Wall Street corporate interests. And we have going for the choice between a fascist, racist, populist state candidate party and a Bloomberg-like, technically nice to marginalized people, but politically bereft of policies that actually benefit them. And I don't know what happens in that world. You're scaring me. That's that's a nightmare. And it's also it's also very plausible, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's terrifying. Yeah, well, I, I I certainly hope it doesn't happen, but I can I can imagine it happening. Yeah, I don't know what we'll do if that if if, if that's the situation we end up in. Although it's not really that much worse than the situation we we've had, where it is a and not even economically populist, like fascist, right? And 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 then you know as you've described with the Democratic Party, it shouldn't take, you know, it shouldn't take a pandemic to get people to realize this because the next pandemic is like any historical awareness, you can see pandemics happen. Like if you don't have the system in place to deal with it, like it's just, these things will happen again and again. And it's maddening that in this country, we can get a war effort together. We can, we can immediately somehow have the resources to invade Middle Eastern countries, but then like somehow we can't get enough tests 
for an epidemic that is devastating our own country. It's madness to me. Right, right. Well, nothing of this has to happen because we have half of Americans who haven't voted yet. And I think this is polls are showing that this pandemic is really changing minds. The gap between Bernie and Biden is closing at a rapid race. I think that's part of why you haven't seen Biden in the public sphere at all. He is now, I think, increasingly being judged for not being present in a way that you would hope a leader would be in this crisis. And I encourage everyone listening to keep phone banking, to keep organizing so it's something you can at home. This campaign is better situated to do so than any other. And please continue to listen to and support left media. Natalie, can you tell people where to find you? Yes, I am Contra Points on YouTube, on Patreon. That's how how I fund the show, and on Instagram. Uh, I do tweet occasionally. I tweet. I, I tweeted to uh, to endorse Bernie, but I, I generally don't tweet anymore. But I'm Contra Points on Twitter as well. Okay, and I really, really, highly, highly, highly recommend that anybody who is not already a listener checks her out. Do you have one or two of your most popular kind of videos that you think? folks should listen to first to get a taste of what the ContraPoints experience is like? Um, sure. Yeah. I guess one people often start with my incels video. That's the most popular one. It seems to bring a lot of people to the channel. It's a little bit older now. I guess there's a video called Opulence. That's a good one to start with. I think that's it's sort of it's a video that speaks for itself, whereas some of, the, some of my other ones, it sort of helps to know my other videos first. So you can start there. Okay. Fabulous. Thank you so much. I've been so eager to talk to you for so long and Hopefully we can get together and do this in person at some point after all of this is over. Yes, I would love that. Uh, It's great hearing from you again. And thank you for having me on. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week. Hi, my name is Mary and I'm a Bernie Help Desk volunteer. I wanted to read an email that we recently received. Dear Bernie, I'm a young insurance company worker in Los Angeles County. My husband and I are both out of work right now and home with our five and seven year old daughters. I live in Arizona. I am sick and also have underlying health issues. In the last week, I lost my job to coronavirus and will likely not be paid for any missed time. I also no longer have a place to live and will be moving back to my parents after camping out for a while to self-isolate. My company is forcing us to work despite instruction from the California governor and Los Angeles mayor. We have been told we cannot do our job from home. My husband is immunocompromised and we are underinsured. I am proud to have supported and donated to your campaign in 2016 and 2020. I am brokenhearted that I was not able to vote for you, though, because of my health. In this time of chaos, you and your campaign have been the bright, shining beacon of hope. What I appreciate most about the tone Bernie has taken recently is that he's able to be hopeful without backing down from hard truths. Please help us, Bernie. My daughter has immunodeficiency, and I have to come into work every day. You are literally the only promise of hope for our current situation. I hope that you continue your campaign in spite of the odds against us. You know better than I do how hard it is to fight against the establishment. Thank you for fighting for us despite everything. And if there's anything we need in these hard times, it's the promise that when the dust settles, it is possible for things to change for the better. can't do much volunteering while I am living out of my car, but I'll be back on my feet soon and will be attending our county assembly virtually to try to be a delegate for you. 
Thank you for all you have done and continue to do for me and everyone else who is suffering. Not me, us.